0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3,
1: 2. 1, 2, three, four, five, five, four, three, two one. Space Nuts. Astronauts report. It feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on this, the Space Nuts podcast. It's all about uh, space, astronomy and stuff. Space science, you name it, we do it. And my name is Andrew Dunkley, by the way, uh, your host. And joining me, as always, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Oh, pollen around ah, pollen city round <laughs> yeah, here. Pollen city. Yeah, again. It's the worst hay fever I've ever had. Oh, really? Uh, and yes, I don't think I've ever had it worse than I've. Got, I mean, I'm you know medicated to the eyeballs, but. Um, it's the eyeballs that are suffering the most because yeah, yeah. the drops just don't do the trick. Yeah. I mean, I, I love change of season. I prefer the warmer weather, but yeah, it comes with a price, but uh, we're right in the midst of it. But uh, the reason is because we've had um, uh, drought breaking rains and I, I I know it's not official yet, but the drought is basically over in this part of the world. And we have got crops as far as the eye can see, uh, way down south, all the way to the the Hunter uh, Coast, and right up in the northwest of the state, around uh, places like Walgett and Burke, um, there's just mega crops. Um, the farms are just brimming with crops. It looks fantastic, and the canola is blooming. So you've got these these sort of green patches with, with with these yellow squares in the middle of them. They look fantastic. It really looks pretty, but the pollen. Good grief! You can look out over the horizon, and it looks like a fog, but it's not. Mm. It's that nasty pollen stuff that gets into your system. But um, yeah, we, uh, yeah, I think most people are pretty happy with the situation at the moment, uh, and the dam's filling up. So uh, yeah, we're all uh, we're all good. What about your part of the world, Fred? Uh, it's not like
2: that. Uh, I, I traditionally suffer from hay fever as well, but um, so far it's just been the odd sneeze down here in Sydney, but. Something to look out for, Andrew. If you have Mm -hmm. a lot of pollen in your atmosphere, you should check out the sun. And so what you need to do is put your thumb up or or better still something a little bit bigger that blocks out the direct light of the sun. And you might find you see some colored rings around it, um, which is called a pollen corona. And it comes oh. about because if there's a lot of pollen in the atmosphere, the pollen grains are all the same size, and so you get a process called diffraction, uh, which splits the light up into its rainbow colours. So you might see these coloured rings uh, with uh, some, you know reds and greens in them, uh, which are quite spectacular. I, when I used to live in Coonabarabran, uh, quite commonly at this time of the year, you could see them. Uh, they're well worth a look if you... If you, if you actually do see them. So uh, you can let me know next time
1: if you find I I'll, I'll, I'll give that a crack because uh, it is a um, clear sunny day today, but I can see a haze, so there is pollen in the air. So I'll, I'll give that a try. And if I can get a photo, I'll, um, I'll, be even better. I'll publish it. Yeah. On our Facebook page. Yeah. Now, today, Fred, we're we're going to look at, uh, I was amused last weekend. I I always read the news on a Sunday morning, just kick back with a cup of coffee and and catch up on all the the dross that's getting put out by those, um, you know, most savoury news outlets. And uh, apparently we were going to get hit by an asteroid again that that seems to be one of the sunday go to stories Oh, we're going to get hit by an asteroid although this this turned into a rather interesting story because it it probably isn't an asteroid it could be a rocket yes so um we will look at that uh and we've got a bit of um audio to play for you today uh, a a piece of music has been put together Uh, and it's titled The Music of the Milky Way. So uh, we're going to hear that today. And uh, something a little bit different in the question department because, um, surprisingly, we were a bit light on for questions, didn't get any new audio questions and uh, only, I think, one, well, one email um, with uh, three questions on it. So we're going to go with that. And I'd like to say that this this fellow works for the Jet Propulsion Lab in NASA or, um, you know, for JAXA or one of – I don't know where he comes from, but his name's Ashley and he's come up with three rather stunning questions that we're going to um, put to you, Fred, because, um, yeah, they're worth answering and they're worth discussing. So uh, it, we don't often play favourites, but Ashley came to the party for us this week with with three stunners, so we're going to knock them all over in this week's edition of Space Nuts. Now Fred um uh, fake news fake news uh we're going to get hit by a not asteroid in fact i don't even think we're going to get hit by it but we might capture it
2: uh, that 's a possibility that 's certainly the kind of thing that has been raised before with such uh, events as uh, are now taking place. So what has happened here is that uh, what was classified as an asteroid has been detected uh, i think by the panstars project, which is a telescope on a mountain called Haleakala in the island of Maui uh, in the Hawaiian chain. Haleakala has a number of telescopes. It's not quite as high at 10,000 feet uh, as Mauna Kea on the big island of Hawaii, which is over 14,000 feet, uh, but still has absolutely stunning conditions for observation. And I'm pretty sure that's where this was picked up. So an asteroid... Uh, in a very similar orbit to the Earth around the Sun, uh, gets classified as an asteroid given a name, 2020 SO. Uh, but um, what has now transpired is that a gentleman by the name of Paul uh, is either Chodas or Kodas or Codas, C-H-O-D-A-S. He is the director of the near-Earth asteroid uh, section at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Centre for Near-Earth Object Studies at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, in Southern California, uh, Pasadena, in fact. So uh, Paul has, um, or Dr Chodas, let's give him his formal name, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Uh, actually looked at the orbital dynamics of this object and finds that it is in an orbit that may reveal the fact that actually it's not a natural asteroid at all. It is uh, the spent uh, upper stage of a rocket, uh, in fact, a centaur upper stage, very commonly used uh, during the 1960s, uh, a rocket which was taking a spacecraft to the moon, not um, a, a spacecraft with a crew on board, but one of the Surveyor series of robotic spacecraft, in fact, Surveyor 2, uh, which was on its way in 1966, uh, but it didn't make it because there was a fault with one of the thrusters, uh, I think, when the Surveyor was coming down to the moon and it actually crash-landed on the moon. Uh, Surveyors oh. Surveyor, are well-known to, you know, um, uh, people who are interested in our exploration of the Moon, because Surveyor 3, which was successful and went the following year, 1967, uh, was actually the the one that was landed right beside by Apollo 12, so that the astronauts of Apollo 12 could pull bits off it and bring them back to see what uh, a year and a half of exposure to the lunar climate uh, did to things. So the Surveyor series were generally successful, but Surveyor 2 wasn't, and its upper rocket body uh, would have basically gone into orbit around the sun and that is what uh, this scientist thinks uh, has now been rediscovered.
1: So okay now this is a bit unexpected because um, when when it passed the moon they basically uh, thought well that's the end of that we'll never see this thing again and it may and and this has not been confirmed yet has it it's just a theory at this stage but the numbers are starting to add up but they didn't think it had come back it's like the the, the old cat isn't it just keeps turning up turning up that's right.
2: <laughs> these things do once again we're littering the solar system and and um so yeah okay so why why do they think it's uh this particular object well it's um it basically uh, an orbit uh, that is really very nearly circular, very similar to the Earth's, in the same plane as the Earth's. There's no tilt, and that is the kind of smoking gun. And and actually slow as well, 2,400 kilometres per hour, if my arithmetic, done in my head is correct, that is two-thirds of a kilometre per second, which is very slow for an, orbit, an orbiting object. Um, uh, and... What will confirm it, Andrew, is what the effect of solar radiation is on it, because this is – the Centaur is – I mean, it's basically – it's an empty
1: um, – a, a tin can, really, an empty, a large one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, that, that's how it's been described in in the popular press, as, a, right. as a, an empty tin can, yeah. yeah. They, it, David Bowie would be thrilled.
2: It would. That's right. Eight meters long, three meters in diameter, and that so it's very light, and that means that the sun's radiation uh, could have an effect on it. Could could sort of push it into uh, an orbit that is. Uh, what we say, uh, perturbed by non-gravitational forces. In other words, its orbit could be changing because of the radiation of the sun. And that would probably be the, uh, the, the clincher. Uh, the thinking is that it's going to go into orbit around the Earth, uh, but that orbit will be uh, unstable. It will probably spend four months or so circling the Earth uh, from about the middle of next month, mid-November, and then will be ejected, back into its own orbit around the sun, uh, and, you know, that might be the last we see of it. Uh, so uh, a really interesting piece of detective work on the part of uh, of scientists whose,
1: whose day-to-day job is actually looking at these things. Yes, indeed, and, and the fact that it's sort of been doing this for 50, was 54 years? Yes, that's right. It's been sort of gallivanting around. And uh, that, is it possible that it's been a, a, around Earth before and we haven't noticed, or is this is maybe its first comeback?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a possibility that it may once have, or, you know, in, in, in the past have been uh, in orbit around the Earth. But it's now because we've got these really powerful near-Earth asteroid-searching telescopes that we find these things. And you can bet your life that when... The Vera C-Rubin telescope comes on stream, uh, I think, next year, uh, which is an 8.4-metre telescope, uh, which will survey the entire sky every week. Uh, We'll find a lot more of this kind of thing.
1: Mm. Yeah, unfortunately, there is a lot of... Garbage out there that we've um, we've just sort of left, yeah uh, I think in the modern age we're starting to pay a bit more attention to it and make things more retrievable and salvageable, but uh, yeah fifty years of not doing that has created uh, all sorts of all sorts of junk uh, do Do we know what Surveyor two was supposed to achieve? um yeah it was it was a lander uh, uh, the
2: idea was very much to make sure first of all that uh, you're not going to land on the moon and sink into its uh, surface because of um, this dry quicksand effect that some people thought that the moon might exhibit it was a big worry uh, especially when you you know you're planning to send humans to the moon uh, but also it had Uh, You know, all the usual radiometers, spectrometers, a camera on board, uh, stuff to really sample the lunar environment in as much detail as
1: possible. Now, it is possible that this is not the rocket we're talking about, but uh, it is starting to look more and more likely, I, I suppose that's the best way to put it. That is very much the conservative approach to take, Andrew. I admire
2: your uh, your scientific insight there. It, it, it is probably it, but we're not
1: certain. It's called journalistic integrity. <laughs> Not many of us left.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you were, you're the last
2: person I would have thought of. <laughs> no, no, no. Just joking. <laughs> Just joking. Okay,
1: okay fair enough. <laughs> there may be more on this story, but it won't good come good. from me. You're, li- you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. This episode of Space Nuts is brought to you by LastPass, simplifying your online life. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably find one of your biggest frustrations in life is remembering all your passwords, all those login details, usernames, passwords, important information that have built up over many, many years, And, and you might have hundreds of them. I know last time I counted, I had like 88 passwords for various things, and it can get quite cumbersome. So what can you do about it? Well, I use LastPass. It's a password manager. It's a fabulous solution to this problem. And believe me, the relief is unbelievable, not to mention time-saving. Now, you can sign up for LastPass and you'll be joining 25.6 million fellow users from around the world and 70,000 plus businesses. With those kinds of numbers, they've got to be doing something right, and they do. In my experience, it is simplified everything i've got every username every password from everything i do built into LastPass, and it's it's integrated uh, i can use it on my desktop i can use it on my laptop i can use it on my phone i can use it on my ipad it's that simple and it can even work in a way whereby you don't have to type in anything you open LastPass. you type in what you're looking for let's say it's your gmail account or something. And it will bring it up and you just click on the link and it will open it for you. You don't have to do anything. It is really, really good. Now, uh, you can get the premium package for around $4.50 a month. And there's a family and enterprise plan as well. And it works, as I said, across all devices. Uh, Put your passwords in. You can go into autopilot. You can reduce the stress. It's really fabulous. Uh, I highly recommend it. And it will give you peace of mind. You will never have to sit there going, oh, no, I've forgotten my password. It's one of the worst feelings in the world, and this is the solution. It's really simple and highly secure. I mean, it is very safe. All you have to remember is a master password, one password, so that you don't have to remember any of the others. So check it out. Go to spacenutspodcast.com slash lastpass. And help support the show. Sign up and you can check it out for free at spacenutspodcast.com/slash last and just simplify your life. Link details are in the show notes and on our website. Now back to Space Nuts.
0: Space Nuts.
1: Now don't forget if you are a social media user, you can find Space Nuts on most social media platforms. Uh, there's a uh, a presence on Pinterest as far as I'm aware, certainly on Twitter, definitely on Facebook. And there's a a podcast group that's been created by uh, Space Nuts listeners. It's called the Space Nuts Podcast Group. They put a lot of thought into that name. I think there were several votes before they decided upon that one. Uh, But uh, it's where um, Space Nuts listeners can get together and talk to each other. Quite often questions get posed and answers are very liberal uh, in, um, in in the way they're furnished, people love talking to each other about these things, uh, whatever the t- uh, topic might be. So uh, check it out if you if you haven't joined the Space Nuts podcast group yet. Uh, I highly recommend it. I poke my head in there occasionally and uh, and uh, and occasionally make a, a a remark, but it's really for the listeners. Uh, they're the ones who wanted to put it together, so um, uh, that's where you go. Of course, the Space Nuts official. Um, Facebook page is there as well and you can uh, you can join that too and of course YouTube you can listen on YouTube and uh, find us there and I don't know where else so many other places Uh, now Fred let's uh, let's go to this next story which is uh, something a little bit different for us because it's um, it's about listening to the music of the Milky Way, uh, as reported by the AstronomyNow.com website. We should give them a credit because they've put up this piece of audio. This this is really, really interesting. What what sort of led to this, do we know? Uh,
2: I think it's come about because um, people, you know, know that there are many different ways of looking at the universe. And so this is a a novel, a new and different way, uh, that has been put together by scientists at the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And in fact, it's, uh, yes, astronomy now has carried the story, but the Chandra X-ray Observatory website has uh, has information on this. So um, basically, Chandra is NASA's flagship mission for X-ray astronomy. It's a bit like the Hubble. It's one of the great orbiting observatories. Um, and these scientists, uh, Chandra, what they've done is they've said, well, we've got images of the Milky Way taken by all these marvelous orbiting telescopes, uh, and they and that gives us a, a very multi-wave band view of the Milky Way. And so what they've done is they've merged images from the Hubble telescope, so that's in the visible and ultraviolet, uh, from the Chandra X-ray Observatory, so that's X-ray images of the Milky Way, and the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is no longer operational, but uh, uh, did actually observe the uh, Milky Way in the infrared waveband. So taking these three, four really, because you've got ultraviolet in there as well from Hubble, uh, very, very different wavebands, made a composite image of the Milky Way, and then they mm. have sonified it, and the sonification process says, okay, uh, let's uh, it, look at the, the picture and uh, from top to bottom, imagine that you're going from higher to lower notes. So that gives you uh, you know uh, if if you get a ping in the middle range of the of the musical scale, then that's somewhere in the middle of the image uh, and it's caused a ping would be caused by a point of light, a drone would be caused by uh, an extended object, something which uh, which covers many many pixels, in other words, a, a bigger part of the image uh, and then they give it a tone which depends on the Instrument which was used to make the, the, uh, that particular part of the, uh, uh, of the image. In other words, the Hubble or the Chandra or the Spitzer telescope. Uh, they, they've, they've given it a kind of timbre, a, 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 a characterization of the note. And so uh, when you put it all together, you get something that I think is extremely beautiful, um, a kind of sonic journey across the length of the Milky Way uh, with remember the high notes are from the top of the image, the low notes are the, from the bottom of the image, but they're played as you scan across the width of the image, uh, and you, uh,
1: get a, a very, I think, a very restful sound. It's sort of um... oh, it's it's lovely. It is really lovely, and and it's so basically you know, what we're about to hear is actually scientifically produced this isn't just somebody playing games with 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 noise and and just sort of running them across a a 400 light year wide image this is scientifically produced so what you're hearing is uh designated sounds based on the objects in the image is that what is that what does that describe it it, it perfectly and
2: and in, in a way it's a diff you know it's a different way of looking at the sky, except you're not looking; you're listening to it. But you know, if if we were equipped only with ears, and some people are, um, then this is a great way to visualize the
1: splendour of the Milky Way. Okay. Well, uh, without further ado, let's have a uh, a listen to the music of the Milky Way. <laughs> Thank you. absolutely lovely, isn't it? And to think that yeah, that that compilation is based on um, the visual uh, overlapping of several uh, observations uh, and 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 put together in uh, to create that sound. Uh, one of the sounds you heard, and I don't know which one it was, but I'm guessing it was one of the big ones. Was Sagittarius A star, right. which we've talked <laughs> about many times. Uh, and, uh, uh, and and several other objects uh, in our particular um, part of the universe, the Milky Way. So, uh, yeah, that's just beautiful. They, they've done a really good job of that, haven't they? That's right. Who would have thought a black hole would have sounded so lovely? Because
2: in the middle of a yeah. star, that's where the black hole is. And, and just a postscript to this, Andrew, um, if um, people want to follow up a bit on this, the, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, website uh which is chandra.si.edu uh if you if you go to that website and hunt around a bit it's actually under their photo album section uh you can find the sonification you'll find exactly what we've just been playing but you can also find the individual tracks that come from each of these different telescopes so uh, you can find the, the the Chandra track, the Hubble track, uh, and I think the Spitzer track as well. You can listen to them independently. Uh, and you can also look at some other objects in the sky. They've sonified an image of Cassiopeia A, which is a very bright X-ray source in the sky with with an optical counterpart. And perhaps most especially they've sonified... The Pillars of Creation. Remember the images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Those three Pillars of Creation. They've done a sonification of that too, so you can you can look at all of this. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a great place to have a look around, especially if you like uh, if you like music and you're musically minded. A different way of looking at the sky.
1: Yeah, this could be really good for the um, sight impaired. Uh, exactly. Who think other yeah, exactly, You people who never get an opportunity to see what's out there. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, uh, you know, creating images in their mind through music or through through various tones uh, might be might be an option. I think it's fabulous. Yeah. Um, we might um, pop that on again uh, towards the the end of uh, this episode. It, it's not unlike the way we record our podcast, Fred. There's the 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 Fred Star um, <laughs> sound on one side, and the Andrew Black Hole sound on the other side, and we put it all together at the end. <laughs> Our tracks are independently recorded from different observations. It uh, doesn't sound as good as that, does <laughs> <laughs> not No, definitely not. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. As always, I'd like to thank uh, our patrons, the people that put a, a little bit of uh, coin into the podcast via Patreon or Supercast or Acast, whatever is your preference. Uh, all the details on our website, of course, SpaceNutsPodcast.com, if you'd like to become a patron. And if you are a patron, um, keep an eye out for new material. It should be up Very, very soon, if not already, uh, a couple of new segments for our patrons. Uh, Of course, as a patron, you do get bonus material. You do get the ad-free version and you do get the early edition of the Space Nuts podcast. That's just part of the deal and our way of saying thank you for supporting us. Uh, Every dollar counts and uh, yeah, it keeps us um, sort of hooning along in space, as we like to do. Uh, Now, Fred, uh, question time. And we have three questions to tackle today. Two are pretty serious topics. One's just a a bit uh, tongue-in-cheek, but it should be fun. And they all come from Ashley. Now, Ashley has uh, sent us questions before, but uh, for some strange reason, we've hit a a bit of a question drought. So don't forget, if you want to send us a question, you can do that via uh, our website, just uh, fill in the blanks. Uh, at um, com, or you can go to the AMA tab at the top of the website, click on that and actually record your question uh, with your own voice and everything and uh, and ask your question that way. Just uh, tell us who you are, where you're from and ask your question like uh, how did Andrew go at golf last weekend? Yeah, well, I shot 81. That was pretty good, yeah. Um, was that eight more than that? Was that 81 light years? 81, well, we shook it did it that far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, that's how you get your questions to us on Space Nuts. Now, uh, thank you, Ashley, for sending in uh, this treasure trove of questions. Hi, Andrew and Fred. I have more questions for you. This uh, first one is about population three stars. Is there a theoretical minimum size for population three stars? There is obviously a lower mass limit for younger stars before they are classed as brown dwarfs, which is about 10% the mass of our sun. But is this different for stars which would have no metals in their formation? This of course leads to the question, could there be population three red dwarfs with no metal in their spectra? So that's his first question, Fred. This is that's a really fascinating and insightful question. Obviously, knows his stuff, does Ashley?
2: Yeah, indeed. So let's just um, this, um, what the, what's the, what they say. Let's just unpick this. Yes, that's what they say. Journalistic circles. Uh, yes you would know it's um it's uh it what is a population three star so this was a classification that goes back to a man called uh well i guess he would have been walter Bader when he was in germany but he moved to america in the 1930s and became walter Bader, a very famous astronomer who during the blackout actually at mount wilson observatory when los angeles was blacked out during the second world war he uh observed the stars of the Milky Way and classified them into what are called populations. So very briefly, population one is stars like the sun, stars which are uh, sort of rich in... Now, what we call metals... Is anything other than hydrogen and helium. So, to an astronomer, uh, oxygen is a metal, as is calcium, as is carbon. Um, so, stars are made of uh, hydrogen, helium, and metals. It's a it's a curious thing that that. You know has evolved over over the the decades, but uh, what um, he said was that population one stars are rich in metals they 've got all the components that we find around us on the earth because that 's where they 've come from originally from other stars but then there 's population two, and he noted that they are stars principally in the central region of our galaxy and also in the galaxy's halo, the, the, the spherical swarm of stars uh, which surrounds our galaxy, and they are much lower in metallicity. They, that means they've got fewer of these heavier elements like oxygen and iron and carbon and all of that. But there's also this postulation of a third population, population three, which is the very first stars that were created in the universe. And because metals, heavier elements, are created in stars, if you go back to the first generation of stars, you should find stars with no metals at all in them. Uh, And they haven't actually been found yet. We found population... Uh, what we might call extreme population two stars stars that have got the minutest trace and usually it's iron that you're looking for uh, but very little and you know that they are very very old stars because they've got such small amounts of these contaminants that have come from earlier generations of stars but population three uh, is still something we have not genuinely seen. And population three stars are usually assumed to be very large, with masses up to 100 times the mass of the sun. Because they were formed in the early universe, hydrogen was everywhere. Uh, they pulled in you know, lots and lots of hydrogen as they collapsed gravitationally into a star. Uh, and uh, But there wasn't much else apart from the helium, which also comes from the Big Bang, by the way. So the hydrogen and helium are leftovers from the Big Bang. Uh, Okay, so to the question: Is there a lower mass limit? And uh, that's a really interesting question because, uh, as I've just said, we we normally think of these things as being highly massive. Um, the the outcome and I'm not a specialist on, on population three, although I've worked um, you know, to some extent with uh, scientists who are looking for extreme population two stars. We did that in the RAVE survey. We actually uh, looked at some very low metallicity stars which are extreme population two. Uh, but uh, there certainly have been studies that have looked at exactly this. If you've got a, a, a low mass star being formed um, in the early universe? What would happen to it? And the usual thinking is that a low mass star wouldn't stay a low mass star for long, because as it was growing, there's so much raw material there, it just accumulates more gas and becomes a high mass star. So the thinking is that there probably aren't any, but there was a study uh, which took place in 2017 that looked at the possibility of there being a low-mass star or or a star which is going to be a low-mass star. It's still accreting material. If, because of gravitational interactions with other objects within the cluster in which it's being born, if those gravitational uh, attractions uh, ejected it from the birth cluster before it could collect more mass, then you might have a population three star that survives to the present day. Uh, and they, they're looking at something about 0.8 of a solar mass. So it's it's not the, the brown dwarf star sized objects that, Ashley was uh, referring to, which are indeed actually they're smaller than 10%. I think it's 13 times the mass of Jupiter is the lower mass for a brown dwarf star. Uh, So they're not at that level. Uh, They're much more like the mass of the sun, but 0.8 of the mass of the sun. uh, This was suggesting that a star of that mass could survive to the present day, uh, and that means we might find one, uh, one that was ejected from its birth cluster before it could get bigger, uh, but it hasn't been found yet. Uh, the, the normal way of looking for population three stars, of course, and this is one of the targets of the forthcoming uh, array of extremely large optical telescopes that we will have, uh, th- that is to look into the, to the distant universe. So you're seeing these stars... Uh, as they were, you know, just a few hundred million years after the birth of the universe. That's where you expect to find uh, conclusive evidence of Population 3 stars, of course, by looking at their spectra, by looking at the the, the rainbow spectrum, which contains the signature of any metals that might be there, or hopefully in this case none, just hydrogen and helium.
1: Okay. So when he asks about uh, Population 3 red dwarf uh, stars, again... Probably not.
2: Mm. Probably not quite that that small, um, but you know, who knows? We might find something like that. It's a great question and a great suggestion. And population three stars are really interesting, mm. as you can, as you can tell from my rather um, long-winded answer there.
1: Well, yeah, it's just another thing we think exists and we just haven't found yet.
2: Yeah, uh, right. which,
1: there's a lot of that going on. In there's Australia, a lot Australia.
2: of that. Yeah, that's right.
1: Okay, now Ashley's second question is about the effect of dark matter. I just heard everybody groan. We talk about dark matter too often. Uh, We notice dark matter's effect on the motion of stars in the galaxy on the large scale. Could we expect to find a similar effect on a smaller scale like the orbits of the outer planets in our solar system? Would it be a feasible idea to put a high-accuracy clock on a deep space probe like New Horizons to measure the gravitational field in outer solar systems or our outer solar system in this case?
2: Yeah, so you're already measuring the gravitational field just by the trajectory of the spacecraft. Um, That actually tells you what gravity is experiencing uh, as you watch its movements over time and so it's being tracked very accurately Uh, and so the gravitational field is exactly what you'd expect with a few what we've referred to already in this uh, in this podcast, uh, non-gravitational perturbations where the radiation of the Sun actually pushes things in a slightly different direction from what you'd expect from pure gravity. So that's all sort of taken account of but You would not really expect to see any effects of dark matter in the solar system because uh, on the scale of the solar system, uh, it's very likely that the distribution of dark matter is uniform. So it's... Uh, it, it, it's just providing a, a, a uniform background within which the planets are orbiting and everything is going on as per normal. It's only when you look at large, larger scales where the dark matter seems to be concentrated. And in particular, on the scale of a galaxy, we know that the dark matter is concentrated towards the centre of the galaxy, but extends in a in a spherical halo. And the galaxy is much, much bigger uh, than than the solar system. That's when you start seeing the effects of dark matter. Um, and of course, when you look at bigger structures, like structures of ga- uh, sorry, like clusters of galaxy, you'll, galaxies, you will also see its effects there. So on the scale of the solar system... Uh, we're too small to see the effects of dark matter,
1: okay, I would have thought, and you probably said this in a different way and much more insightfully than I did, but uh, I would have thought that dark matter affects everything when you take into account the entire universe
2: yes that's right it 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 does but um you if you're immersed in a a sea of dark matter which is not do you know not changing at all, then you can't detect it, at least not from a gravitational point of view. You can detect it, we hope one day, by very subtle particle physics detectors and there's a new one being built Uh, there's a new one being built here in Australia called uh, actually in a a mine, the Stoll Deep Mine. They're putting a dark matter detector in there to look for these rare interactions that dark matter might have with normal matter. Uh, That's our best bet for finding it, I think, rather than looking at the gravitational
1: changes on a small scale. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. All right. Now let's get to the final question from our interrogator this week, Ashley. Uh, this one uh, is more of a, a fun question uh, to do with METI, messaging extra, extraterrestrial intelligence. If we take the premise that lots of technologically advanced civilizations exist in each galaxy, but they are separated too far in space and time for a response, then we can ask the theoretical question of the aliens, i.e. ourselves, what would you like to know that we can tell you. So flipping the question, uh, so we're the receiver, what would you, both Andrew and Fred, like the aliens to tell us? Uh, A quick example of such a thing, we transmit a picture of the Andromeda Galaxy to the Andromeda Galaxy. Notwithstanding the link budget issue, as the signal passes through the galaxy and various civilizations detect it, knowing that we are long gone, they decode the signal and see the completely useless but interesting information of what their galaxy looked like two million years ago from the Milky Way. Flipping that same logic, we detect the signal uh, from Andromeda, um, and the information it contains is two and a half million years old a picture of our galaxy from there. Uh, perspective. So, um, what's Ashley actually asking us to answer on this one? Uh, he's asking us um, what we would like to tell aliens. Is that it? No, what the, what we want the aliens to tell us. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I've got a feeling we've been down this road before. Yeah, we've been down similar roads, but it's quite a nice question.
2: And it actually... Um, Uh, introduces an interesting concept, uh, METI, Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which is not something we've done in a big way. I mean, we do it inadvertently by all the radio signals that are leaking out into space from the Earth and this shell of radio signals that's virtually 100 light years in radius because that's how far these radio signals have gone. They're probably so weak now that they're indetectable. Um, but we've never... Uh, I, I think there have been two occasions when testing new uh, radio telescopes, messages have been beamed into space at uh, in directions that we know uh, contain clusters of stars. Uh, one, I think, was with the Arecibo dish, and what was done was a kind of crude picture was encoded into the signal, and it was beamed off. Um they are, however, very rare events, and there hasn 't ever been uh, a, a, a sustained campaign to send signals out directed into space at for example at stars that might contain uh, that might have earth like planets in orbit around them uh, that has not has not happened um, but there is a project which is part of the breakthrough. A set of initiatives which we've talked about before, this set of initiatives uh, funded by Yuri Milner, a, a, a Russian billionaire with a number of quite eminent... Um, scientists among his board, which included, certainly uh, when he was alive, Stephen Hawking. Uh, Breakthrough Listen is one of them, actually using radio telescopes like Parks to listen for extraterrestrial signals, none of which have been found yet. But there is something called Breakthrough Message. It's part of the Breakthrough Initiative. And as it says on their website, Breakthrough Message aims to encourage debate about how and what to communicate with possible intelligent beings beyond Earth it takes the form of an international competition to create messages that could be read by an advanced civilization the message must be in digital format and should be representative of humanity and planet earth and but they make the, the note that for the moment we have no plan to send these messages um, it's really about encouraging global discussion on the ethical and philosophical issues of sending messages into space. Uh, and they pledge not to transmit any message until there's been a wide-ranging debate at high levels of science and politics on the risks and rewards of contacting advanced civilizations. Uh, Stephen Hawking, you might remember, was dead against this kind of thing uh, because
1: he thought yeah. that it might look too tasty for the aliens. Um, yeah. Well, there's always the, there's always the risk of misinterpretation. Yes, that's right. Uh, exactly. You could, send, you could send a message of goodwill and humanity and they interpret it as, as something, you know, quite hostile. A declaration or, or it, of war. <laughs> yeah. Or it translates to, did you remember to bring the milk? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah. What, why would they want to know that? Um, I, I think it's been well portrayed, and I know this is a bit of a joke, but this sort of situation has actually been well portrayed in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Douglas Adams had a lot of fun with this misinterpretation of messages uh, and, and wrote some very funny uh, parts to the, the the story of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, in in, uh, in his in his entire story, like the the, the aliens that attacked Earth because they misinterpreted a message and got eaten by a dog. yeah, that man's brain still intrigues me.
2: Yeah, but the best portrayal was the movie Arrival, uh, which I think you have yeah. saw where the whole of the movie was about the issue of how you communicate with uh, these aliens who turned up on our doorstep. Uh, very, very interesting, you know,
1: ideas in that movie. It was quite a nice movie. And- and the other the other one that portrayed it well was contact where we received an alien signal and what they were sending back to us was the opening ceremony of the 1936 Olympics and the first image we saw from the aliens was a Nazi swastika. Yes. So, <laughs> I mean, there it is. Yes. There it is, exactly yes. the same issue. Uh, misinterpretation, misunderstanding, miscommunication, whatever you want to call it. Um, I suppose we, we should probably uh, indulge uh, Ashley, and, and say, what would uh, we like the aliens to tell us? Um, I think I've, I've tried to think about something different. Um, I mean, the God question comes up, um, you know, how did you come into being? Why are you there? You know, what's what's your history? Were you? Do you believe in a creator? I'd really like to go down that road uh, with the aliens. I, I think it would be interesting to see if they um, sort of became advanced and intelligent um, beings and had a um, biblical belief backing it up, uh, as we do on Earth in many different forms, um, but yes, that that's something I would wonder about, and yeah. so I, I would ask I would ask that question.
2: And, and you could extend that, Andrew, to, you know, to sort of ask them what their version of evolution was, um, because mm. uh, if you ask a scientist on Earth that, that same question, what, where did we come from, then we've got a fairly cogent story about that. But, of course, it it, it all has to have a universe there in the first place, and nobody's very sure about where that came from. Uh so I think that's it. I think that is a great question it's a great line of questioning to take um mine would probably be a lot more
0: uh,
2: a lot simpler and a, a, a you know maybe a lot a lot more naive if I can put it that way it'd be something along the lines of yeah, I, know, I, know, I know what you'd ask go on then you have cats <laughs> do you have cats <laughs> yeah. do you have roosters that's what we'd ask do you have roosters yeah uh, do you- no it would be actually exactly that it would be what's it like where you are um, in yes. other words, to use them as a as a probe to as a tool to probe uh, the details of an environment in space, which is a long way from us, uh, that would be very interesting. It would be like having a free telescope, you know, a, a, a telescope that could could give you um, imagery of 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 things on a local level on an extrasolar planet somewhere uh, that would be that would be priceless information um, weather records almost that sort of thing you know uh, which would uh, let us probe their environment uh, in a way that would be very in- informative to
1: scientists here on earth the, the truth, Ashley, is you'd probably never stop thinking of questions to ask that them. That's why you got into it. There'd just be so much more that you'd want to know. It would be an ever-evolving um, communication situation, I, I imagine, which would, of course, end with, uh, Fred, uh, so long and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Good. Yep. No, but, uh, Ashley, thank you. Uh, you have been our guest interrogator this week and um, some really, really interesting um, uh, topics that you've brought to the uh, to the platform this week, and we, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. Oh, by the way, yes, if you do want to ask a question, as I mentioned before, uh, you can do that on our website. Go to the AMA tab to record your question, or you can do it the old-fashioned way by sending us an email, all available on our website, spacenutspodcast.com. And that's going to wrap us up for another week, Fred.
2: It sounds like it, Andrew, um, but that's been a great uh, discussion and i look forward to the next one, which might not be too far away. <laughs> it probably
1: won't be. I'm thinking a week or so. Uh, thanks, Fred. We'll, we'll go out with some uh, beautiful sounds, the, the music of the Milky Way as created by the Chandra X-ray Observatory and the Spitzer Space Telescope and the Hubble Space Telescope, all those images put together to create uh, a beautiful image, but then they put music to it and created this. It is just absolutely lovely. And uh, that's how we'll finish this week. Uh, Thanks, as always, to Fred. Thanks to Hugh in the studio. And uh, from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks to your company. We'll look forward to uh, joining you again on the next episode of Space Nuts.